morning, let's again take our Bibles, turn to 2 Peter chapter 2, and we're looking at the next one that comes up of the, of the six reasons of the uh, false teachers that are, because they're a threat to a church, we're uh, the church, then we are to uh, know what they are, and then we are to identify them in Scripture. So I, I do um, want to just let you know that as we've been going through Second Peter, continual growth in the true knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ that comes from the Word of God will make you holy and useful. That's the Spirit of God's goal for you and I. It will make the church uh, more ready for the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ, prepared for him, looking for him, living each day in light of that. We also, uh, it will also make the church discerning uh, in the situation that any church would find themselves, it makes them discerning. So a continual growth will take place by a regular transformation of the mind, the will, the affections with the scriptures. And, and why is that? Because the scriptures are sure, uh, they're reliable, they are light, they're illuminating, they are truth, they're revealing they originate from with God, not from men, so they can be fully trustworthy. The apostle Peter has already confirmed to his readers and to those who would read this epistle uh, something more sure than even authentic experience. The more sure witness is the scriptures as it's found in chapter 1, verse number 19, uh, where it says there, so that we have the prophetic word made more sure, to which you will do well to pay attention as a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star arises in your heart. So scriptures are God's communication to us. They have been or, uh, ordained by God, by God's authority, and, of course, the Word of God has been produced by the enabling of the Holy Spirit, and now the Spirit of God takes the Word of God and applies it to our heart. So, as it says in Timothy, all Scripture is inspired. So the Scriptures are, for God's true church, for God's people, the only source of authority. Let's pray. Father, we thank you again this morning for bringing us together in this way that we can gather in our homes, around our computers and our, our, our iPads and our TVs, and we can uh, enjoy this service and we can be part of the worship and the instruction from the Word. So I pray, Holy Spirit, you would use it. You would get me out of the way so the Word of God would come uh, pressing heart upon our hearts and minds, that it would change us, it would make us strong, it would make us discerning in these days in which we live, which are so much truth, so much uh, false teaching flying every which way, and uh, it's being packaged very well as truth when it's not, so we have to have a discerning spirit. Give us that, Lord. I pray this in your name. Amen. So for us, the only source of authority is the Word of God, but let me just give you some information that there are sources of authority other than the Word of God. Actually, there are four courts of appeal 
that claim other sources of authority in various segments of Christendom. For example, one area is reason. Uh, this is the foundation of liberalism, which claims to be a rational system. The mind of man and his reasoning abilities become the source of authority. So they, they would give allegiance to science, to philosophy, to psychology, and to other sources as their authority. Well, there's also a second one, tradition. Authority is understood to be vested in the church and embodied in tradition. Of course, Romanism preeminently exemplifies this approach. It is the church's authority, they say, and of course, it's plus the Bible or plus historical documents. So the church and tradition becomes the source of authority, and the Word of God is either put on an equal level of that or even pushed down as not so authoritative. And then there is what they call the encounter. This is the neo-Orthodox emphasis on authority. It emphasizes an existential encounter with God in the individual's experience. So other groups stress religious experience, and of course this would be the neo-Orthodox approach, that these theologians would not accept the Bible as the word of God propositionally. They would say that it becomes the word of God, that it, it becomes the word of God through an existential encounter. That would say that the Bible is not, they would say that the Bible is not divine revelation, but is, it is a witness to the truth. Thus for them, revelation is not communication, but encounter. Encounter and experience becomes the source of this group's authority. Now, that has slipped into much of charismatic teaching today, that there's a heavy emphasis on encounter with God and experience. Now, we, we do want to encounter God, but how do we do that? We have to do that through the Word of God. So the fourth court of appeal is the Bible itself. Evangelicals emphasize the Bible as our sole authority. Although many groups represent a mixture of these positions, the Bible believers who hold to the fundamentals of the faith once delivered to the saints maintain the complete sufficiency of the Bible as our only court of appeal, that the scriptures alone become the source of authority. So the Bible really does us no good if it, is, if it is not read, if it is not heard, if it's not meditated upon, and if it, it finally is not obeyed in love. The Word of God is the power that will sustain the Christian as they walk with God because that they know, they know, they come to know that the Bible is the source of truth, it is the source of power, it is the source of guidance, it is the source of victory, it is the source of God's blessing, it is the source of spiritual growth, and also included with that, it is where we learn a proper hermeneutic on how to handle the scriptures and do it accurately.
So if you ignore or neglect God's word, you come you become prey to your own laziness, to spiritual blindness, and to all kinds of false teaching and religious error. You give room for all kinds of things to be taught because somebody is a nice person or somebody has the ability to teach well. Uh, it doesn't mean that they are a true teacher of God. So as you and I wait for the coming of Jesus Christ, we need to stick close to, to the Word of God for all our truth, for life, and for guidance for living a holy and godly life. It was J.C. Ryle who said, ignorance of Scripture is the root of all error and makes a man helpless in the hand of the devil. And so only by the Word of God will you and I be more able to detect the threats to the church. And of course, we have been talking about those threats found in Chapter 2, and those threats are the false teachers. So remember, just as false prophets were a threat to the unity and purity of Israel, and that's, that's key, the unity and purity of Israel, false teachers will also be a threat to the u- unity and purity of the true church. Now, mingled in with the true, the true prophets in the Old Testament were false prophets, the same thing is happening today today. They have high-profile ministries, very influential, and uh, they have a lot of exposure. And so there are false teachers. We have to know what they, who they are and what they're teaching. So the great danger that faces the church is that these false teachers, therefore, need to be discerned. We need discernment. And the only place we're going to get discernment is the Word of God. So we've been looking at discerning the threats of false teachers to the church, and we have been also looking at the six reasons false teachers are a threat to the church. So the the future arrival of false teachers is now here. It's it's been here since the apostles, uh, from since the start of the church, and they are still here. So that means we need, as a people, to be ready for them to know who they are uh, by what they say and what they don't say and how they live. So the first reason was we already looked at was false teachers cleverly teach destructive heresies. In verse 1 of chapter 2 of 2 Peter, it does say that, you will, who will secretly introduce destructive heresies. So, in other words, their words don't square with the Bible. Their words are are other than what the Scriptures teach. Uh, And what they are introducing is not that easy to catch. It is packaged in Christian lingo. It is given different definitions. Also, it utilizes terminology of biblical Christianity with absolute freedom. redesigning terms in a theological framework of their own making and their own liking, just like the Old Testament false prophets. It, It comes from their own imagination. However, their teaching does not have a sanctifying effect, and, and that's one reason why you know it's not true teaching. It doesn't make people godly or holy. Actually, it says in our passage that it is destructive, has a destructive effect. It's not healthy because their teaching aims at denying 
the essential truths of Scripture, from, from the deity of Christ all the way to the return of Christ, they just twist and turn this way and that way to try to say what they think, say they believe it, even sometimes hold up the Bibles and says we believe the Bible, but then they don't learn the Bible. They don't really know the Bible. They're not taught the Bible. They're not going verse by verse, book by book, and just laying out what God has in it for us as we do that. So the word heresy is a good word because it carries the meaning of a view or opinion, a doctrine that one chooses for oneself and thereby separates oneself from the whole body of those who choose to believe differently. A second thing, a second reason, uh, is that false teachers deny the God of the Bible. All right, That means they deny the master who bought them. Now, we always have to ask the question, is your God the same God of the Bible? I remember having a conversation one day. I was outside uh, looking through the telescope. Somebody who was interested came over and talked with me, and um, he, I began to share the gospel with this particular person, and I began to talk about the judgment of God and the wrath of God on sinners. And he immediately said to me, oh, that's not what I believe. That's not my Jesus. And I says, well, if that's not your Jesus, then you have the wrong Jesus. And uh, see, that's how people think today. They don't want to look at the negative. There is always always the, the negative part or the, the tough, uh, hard part of the gospel that leads us to why we need to be saved. From the, we need to be saved from the wrath of God. So we have to ask the question, you may, we better make sure that your God is the same God of the Bible, whether you call him Jesus or not, Yahweh or not. Is he portrayed in Scripture? If you love him and follow him, you will obey him and you will follow his word as the only rule of faith and authority in your life. Now, in our passage here in verse number one, that these are people who deny their Lord or their master. Now, remember, it's not the regular word for master. It's the word uh, despots, and it means sovereign master or creator. Uh, it gives the idea of an owner, especially the ruler over a household. And, of course, when I mentioned it last time, really what it's saying here is that the master is the one who pur purchase, purchases them, which is precisely how a householder would acquire a servant or a slave in their household. So in other words, a despot who buys something owns something. And so here, false teachers are denying the Lord their God, creator, who made them, and as creator, he owns them. He has, they are his property. So false teachers claim to be part of the household of God, but they refuse to submit to the master of the house. And how do they do that? Well, they do it by, they deny their master by not obeying him, not following the word of God, right? They deny their master in their teaching. They adhere to other forms of, and sources of authority, not the word of God. And of course, they deny the master by their behavior, by a sinful lifestyle, because what they're teaching doesn't produce a holy lifestyle. They're still locked into a, their old man, a sinful lifestyle. So they're living in contradiction to his life and his teaching. And just as Jude tells us, he, they deny 
our, to deny our only master by their licentiousness, uh, Jesus Christ. And so false teachers, they, they knew the truth and they turned from it. They are professors that they are believers, but they reject the authority of the Creator and actually deny His redemptive offer and purchase. They actually say no to that. And the reason why is because they want to live the way they want to live. They don't want to change and be holy. It's hard to be holy. It, t- it takes difficult decisions to live a holy life. It means denying yourself of things that you used to enjoy that were sinful. See, a holy life is a difficult, it's a narrow life, but it is a life of real freedom. And see, that's what they don't get. And it's not like they were ever genuinely saved. The point is is that they end up not having any proof of salvation. A third reason, a third reason for uh, what we have been mentioning here is that uh, a, um, of, of the six reasons of the false teachers to be a threat to the church is that false teachers bring certain imminent judgment upon themselves in verse number one. It says, and they bring swift destruction upon themselves. All right, so, so the, their teachings are destructive to others. And then finally, it comes all the way around like a boomerang. When you throw a boomerang, it's supposed to come back to you. They, their judgment comes back to them. That means their judgment, according to Scripture, is imminent. Uh, their condemnation has been hanging over their heads for a long time, and just because they, they don't believe that there is a judgment doesn't mean that there is not a judgment. There is a judgment, and so we know that it will come, and the Bible warns us of that. So this morning, we are looking at the fourth reason, uh, and that's the fourth reason is that false teachers seduce many to follow their evil teaching and shameful lifestyle in verse number two it says many will follow their 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 sensuality and because of them the way of truth will be aligned so the first part of that verse is where i like to focus this morning and look at really what the word of god says about how we're supposed to live so these false teachers you notice here many will follow their sensuality they're popular they're, they're, they can get a crowd. They know how to manipulate people to get them to follow, to get them to give money, to get them to buy into what they're teaching. So many will derive guidance from these teachers. And of course, who move really outside the church and the word of God to pursue their false ideas and practices practices. So they are eclectic religiously. They are often ecumenical and invite all kinds of groups into their group, and they are inclusive of others. As long as you say, I, I believe or I love God or something like that, you're in. You don't have to have any proof of anything. But if you notice here, sensuality is the reason for their popularity because they appeal to people's base desires. The desires that we all have, 
We all know the sinful desires. They, they appeal to the felt needs. They, they really advocate the full freedom of the flesh. Unbridled living. That's their mantra. The false teachers were really propagating a wicked and shameful lifestyle centering mainly on the shameful immorality in, in one's life. Well, look at chapter 2, verse 10, because he says there that they have twisted sexual desires. It says especially, and especially those who indulge the flesh and its corrupt, corrupt desires. And then in verse 10 also, it says, for speaking out arrogant, chapter 2, verse 10, for speaking out arrogant words of vanity, they entice by fleshly desires, by sensuality, those who barely escape from the ones who live in error. And then in verse 13 of chapter 2, they indulge in evil pleasure. Suffering wrong as the wages of doing wrong, they count it a pleasure to revel in the daytime. They are stains and blemishes, reveling in their deception as they carouse with you. And then in verse 14, again, they commit adultery. It leads to that. Uh, eyes Having eyes full of adultery and never cease from sin. Anybody who never ceases from sin is not a believer. A believer may get caught in sin, but they don't have habitual patterns of sin anymore. That's what the Spirit of God breaks. Here, these have habitual patterns of sin. Even though they can give a good front and give a good word, at least they use words enticingly behind the scenes in their heart, this is who they are. They're not telling you they're, they're this. This is what the Spirit of God's telling you is really there. So that's why we need to be discerning. So false teachers believed that following their own lust and showing no restraint were actually signs of maturity. It was signs of freedom. For false teachers, freedom in Christ is to follow their own sensuality, not the truth. The lure of false teachers is to bring one into their world. That is how they can, a person can live their best now, life now is just do what you want. Do what your desires dictate, right? So for false teachers, freedom in Christ is to follow their own lusts and not the truth. Actually, they are slaves of corruption. Look at chapter 2, verse 19. It says, promising them freedom while they themselves are slaves of corruptions. For by, for by what a man is overcome by this, he is enslaved. So in other words, they're still enslaved to sin, but they're preaching freedom. So the false teachers actually are feeding the strongest urges of the fallen nature, the, the strongest urges of humanity. And of course, that is to be wealthy, uh, to be healthy, to be prosperous, to get what you want now. Not wait for heaven. Not wait for the kingdom. No, get it now, because God wants to give it to you now. So the highest goal that these teachers really offer is for their followers to pursue the passing 
pleasures of this world. That's the goal, the pleasures of this world. For them, the evidence of the Holy Spirit's influence in their person's life is material prosperity. You're being blessed by God. Mindless emotionalism, just letting yourself go and and free. You don't have to think about anything. Seeking also spiritual experiences. This is a big one. Suppose miracle encounters. That's why I have three minutes in heaven, ten minutes in hell, books written on these things. That's, That's utter foolishness. You don't find anything like that in the Word of God. So, in other words, if you don't encounter those things that they say, then you just don't have enough faith, or you haven't given enough money. See, that's where it all leads. So, instead, for us, for believers, the real evidence of the Holy Spirit of God's work is the believer's growth in spiritual maturity practical holiness and godliness, Christ-likeness, where the Holy Spirit of God convicts the heart of sin. The Holy Spirit helps us combat worldly lusts, our old uh, Adamic nature that has died. He cultivates spiritual fruit in the lives of God's people. In fact, Paul wrote in Romans in chapter 8, In verse 12 through 13, you may want to turn there very quickly. He said this in verse number 12, So then, brethren, Romans 8, 12, So then, brethren, we are under obligation not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. That's not where our obligation lies. But look at verse number 13 of Romans chapter 8. For if you are living according to the flesh, you must die. But if by the Spirit you are putting to death the deeds of the body, you will live. So what is our responsibility? What are we to do as believers? We are, actually, as believers, we are to put to death the deeds of the body. We have the authority to do that. We're dead to sin, and we're alive to God. Have you reckoned that yet in your life? Because that is a key in Romans chapter 6 for you to... Live righteously and not live by the dictates of the flesh or the voices of sensuality that wants us to sin again. So according to Scripture, someone claiming to be a Christian and a teacher for God, if they display an immoral character on a regular basis, it, is, it actually invalidates the gospel message which is a characteristic of false teachers and false prophets. Now, on the other hand, Christians who are growing in the true knowledge of Jesus Christ develop a radically different way of dealing with sin. They learn a gospel-oriented strategy for battling with sin as a believer learns what to do and also learns what to avoid. It's always key that we learn what to do, but it also means that we learn what to avoid in our Christian walk. So living for Christ is freedom. Living for the flesh, for sensuality, for fleshly desires, 
and sin is slavery. But that's not how the false teachers package it. Now, if we're going to live a radically gospel-orientated strategy to battle sin, there are certain things, there's two things, uh, two common human strategies that we must avoid. Uh, Just as Jesus was crucified between two thieves, so the gospel is usually crucified between two things. Antinomianism, which is really what they're, this is actually the big word to say that they have freedom to do what they want, all right? And of course, legalism. Antinomianism actually is a word that means anti, against, nominos, means law. That means against law. They're, they're, They're not living according to any standard. It was Martin Luther who used the word to describe the rejection of the moral law as a relevant part of the Christian experience. In the New Testament, Paul refutes the suggestion that the doctrine of justification by faith alone leaves room for persistence in sin or leaves room for licentious behavior or sensual behavior. In fact, in Romans chapter 6, verse 1 and 2, he actually said this, Paul are, you, are we to continue in sin that grace may increase? That's a question. And what's his answer? May it never be. How shall we who die to sin live in it? See, there it is. It's, it's the believer reconciling in their mind and being taught from Scripture that, listen, the Spirit of God gives me the ability to say no to my sin, to put my sin to death to finally be done with it in my life and go on to walk in my sanctification. This is also antinomianism. Today it's called hyper-grace and love movement or teaching. Now this is false teaching. I want to say that right as clearly as I can. The hyper-grace and love doctrine within certain movements is false teaching And the reason why it is is because it leads Christian people to believe I can live any way I want. And, of course, what is their rationalization by being taught that doctrine? Well, they usually think it's no big deal that I've sinned because I'm forgiven. Isn't that what the Christian life is about, to be forgiven? So they rationalize their behavior based on this freedom that they have in Christ to do what they want when they want to do it, to live according to their desires and passions. But there's also a presumption that goes with that. Their presumption, they usually think, when I sin, I'll just confess it. Isn't that what Christians do? They just confess it. In fact, this morning, uh, Dave was teaching on a passage of Scripture. I'd like you to turn to it real quick. Uh, in 1 Samuel chapter 15, verse 19 through 23, Saul disobeyed God and presumed he did good and obeyed the voice of the Lord. So Saul thought he was doing God's will or convinced himself of that and that he was obeying the voice of the Lord. But I want you to notice, I don't want to read the whole passage, but in verse number 19 of 1 Samuel 15, it says, Why then 
This is a conversation between Samuel and Saul, King Saul and Samuel the priest. And it says, why then did you not obey the voice of the Lord, talking to Saul, but rushed upon and spoiled and did what was evil in the sight of the Lord? Question. He's questioning Saul. Look at Saul's answer. Saul said to Samuel, I did obey the voice of the Lord and went on the mission on which the Lord sent me and have brought back Agag, the king of Amalek, and have utterly destroyed the Amalekites. Verse 21, but the people took some of the spoil, sheep and oxen, and choices of the things devoted to destruction, to sacrifice to the Lord, your God, at Gilgal. And Samuel says, has the Lord as much delight in burnt offerings and sacrifice as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice, and to heed then the fat of rams. In verse 23, he really brings it to them, to Saul, and he says, For rebellion is as the sin of divination and insubordination, being also presumption, is an, uh, an inquiry and idolatry, is as uh, iniquity and idolatry, excuse me. But because you have rejected the word of the Lord, he has also rejected you as being king. So, see, in other words, he presumed that he was doing the Lord's will when, in fact, he was completely not doing the Lord's will. And who had to remind him of that? Samuel had to remind him of that. The priest had to bring the exact words back to him that God wanted him to do. So he was, he was clearly rationalizing his sin and presuming that he was doing the right thing when, in fact, he was disobeying. So that is something we have to be careful about. These are human strategies that we all commit at one time or another. It's that of, of thinking that we can sin this sin, and it's not going to hurt anybody, and I'll just confess it when I'm done. That's presumption. So you're just, you're just heaping one sin upon another. And presumptuous sin often brings judgment, like it did here in this case. And then, of course, uh, it was also in Psalm 19, verse 13, where it says, also, it was the psalmist who, who prayed, uh, also keep back your servant from presumptuous sins. Let them not rule over me, then I will be blameless, and I shall be acquitted of great transgression. So he was putting the sin of presumption as a, at a very high level of, of transgression before God. He did not want to live there. We should not want to live there as believers. We should not live there as believers. So the second uh, really common human strategy is that of legalism. I'm not going to spend a lot of time with that one, but the thing is that legalism says this. Yes, Christ did die for my sins, but I earn favor with God through what I do. So the emphasis would be on doing something, adding something to what God has already done for you. In fact, so what happens is that in antinomianism or freedom living or uh, hyper grace, the end motive is to blow off sin. Sin's not a really a big deal. I learned how to deal with it. And then, of course, legalism is you work off sin. Both of them, both of them are human strategies 
and our, actually our destructive strategies. Now, if you care to uh, turn to Romans chapter 6, verse 12 through 18, Paul really lays out there again uh, this whole thing about dealing with our sin in our mortal, bo- mortal body, where he says in Romans 6, verse 12, therefore, do not let sin reign in your immortal body so that you obey its lust and do not go on presenting the members of your body to sin as instruments of unrighteousness, but present yourself to God as those alive from the dead and your members as instruments of righteousness to God. Look at verse 14. For sin shall not be master over you, for you are not under law but under grace. What then? Shall we sin? Because we are not under the law, but under grace, may it never be. Do, not, do you not know that when you present yourselves to someone as slaves for obedience, you are slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin resulting in death or of obedience resulting in righteousness? And then look at verse 17. But thanks be to God that through, though, uh, thanks be to God that though you were slaves of sin, You became obedient from the heart to that form of teaching which you were committed. And having been freed from sin, you became slaves of righteousness. There it is. So, in other words, here's real freedom. You are truly free from sin when you obey God in righteousness. So Christians are slaves to righteousness and no longer slaves to sin. And when you are a slave to righteousness, that's when you experience the real freedom of the Christian life. So what is, what is the godly goal? What is the, we need to adopt a godly strategy for dealing with our sin. Well, what is that? Well, it does say in Proverbs 28, 13, he who conceals his transgressions will not prosper but he who confesses and forsakes them will find compassion. So for the believer, sin grieves God. And we know that. So we must not downplay the seriousness of it in our life. We must really come to terms with the fact that God's grace is greater than all our sins. And But that doesn't mean that we can use earthly or human means to deal with it, what it means is that repentance is one of the Christian's highest privileges. A repentant Christian focuses on God's mercy and God's grace. So at any moment in our lives, when we bask in God's mercy and grace, that is our highest moment because we are taking our sin and we're bringing it again to the Lord and that's why what's written in 1 John chapter 1, verse 9, that if we confess our sins, he is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So see, you see here that you and I will fail. So when we fail and fail we will, the Spirit of God will work on us and bring us to the foot of the cross where Jesus carries our failures. So this that is potentially a glorious moment for the believer, learning how to deal with your sin in a godly way. You 
Don't run from God with it. You run to God with it. And you confess it before him. You name what it is. And you bring it to God already knows it. And you bring it to him. And when you do, then you experience a relationship with the Lord that the fellowship that was broken because of sin is now restored. And so we are walking with the Lord as he walks in the light. We walk in the light. And that light exposes more of our sin. So this is, uh, this is potentially a glorious moment when we learn to practice that. That's when we're freed up because the Lord says, I'll forgive you of all your unrighteousness. For we could at that moment accept God's abundant mercy and grace that he offers to all who will follow a biblical strategy for dealing with their sin. And of course, we fail because we shifted our attention from God's grace and God's mercy to something else, and usually to our sin, to our, our base desires to want to disobey God. So a person who draws on God's mercy and grace is quick to repent but also slow to sin. They have this understanding that has been given to them by the word of God. Like it says in 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 1, Therefore, having these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from all defilement of the flesh and spirit, perfecting holiness in the fear of God. See, that is what we ought to be doing. But that also leads us to dealing with sin in light of Scripture. Scripture is very clear when it comes to sensuality, when it comes to immorality, when it comes to any kind of lustful passion or sexual sin. The Bible is absolutely clear about it. You can't even get away from it. That's why I'd like you to take your Bibles at this point and turn to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. Notice there, there's five reasons why we should abstain from committing this sin. So, in other words, if you know God's word, you would know it is not God's will to live according to our sensuality, fleshly desires, or evil pleasures. That becomes absolutely clear in scriptures. Now, what the false teachers do is they twist the scriptures. In 2 Peter 3.16... It says, and also all his letters speaking in them of these things in which are some things hard to understand, which the untaught and unstable distort, as they also do the rest of the scriptures to their own destruction. Now, here in Thessalonians, the first reason that we should abstain from any kind of sensuality is it's God's will for us. Look what it says. For this sanctification. That is that you abstain from sexual immorality. All right, I'm going to just go through these quickly for, for just a way of practical application. Secondly, in verse 4 and 5, the Holy Spirit has given you the ability to be in control of your body and your passions. Look what it says in verse 4 and 5. In other words, Scripture demands sexual purity on the part of men and women, married as well as unmarried. 
It says there in verse number four and five that each of you know how to possess his own vessel, that is body, in sanctification and honor. And then notice in verse five, not in lustful passions like the Gentiles who don't know God. So if you know God, if you're a believer, then that's clear. It's God's will for me to live like this, no matter what anybody else says. Now, why should you and I restrain ourselves and give our members over to the power of the Holy Spirit for living righteousness? It's for this reason, because you love God, you know God, you want to please Jesus. That is the primary reason for abstaining from any sin, not just sexual immorality. I love Christ. He sees me. He knows me. I want to give myself to him and obey him. So the next reason is really to keep yourself pure for your marriage partner if you are not yet married. Why? Because you know God. So it is God's will that every Christian is to know how to act in this matter of sex so as to be pleasing to God. It is no mistake that this is here in Scripture, and it's very clear. A third reason why we should abstain from sensuality, fleshly desires, and evil pleasures is, number three, sexual immorality and lust defraud other people. You take advantage of other people by this sin. In verse 6 it says that no man transgress and defraud his brother in the manner because the Lord is the avenger of these things, just as also we also told you before and solemnly warned you. So anyone we lust after, if we lust after even pictures, that's why pornography is so incredibly destructive to your Christian walk. Don't say you're walking with the Lord when you fill your mind with the filth of pornography. And this, whether you're a man or a woman today, it doesn't matter. It's everywhere. We need to guard ourselves from this. And so we defraud other people. We defraud our own self and our own spouse when we're involved with behavior like that. That is completely against what God, God's will is. And it says that the Lord is an avenger of those who practice that. You're not going to get away without, without losing greatly, if you are a believer, losing greatly your joy, your peace, and also the, the very fact that you're not growing in the Lord. You're not pursuing holiness and godliness, and therefore what comes back on you is a very dissatisfied, discouraged, uh, disillusioned type of Christian walk because you are living in sensuality. You're living in sin. A fourth reason for abstaining from this sin is you and I are called to holiness. Verse 7 of 2 Thessalonians, 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, God has not called us for the purpose of impurity, but, for, but in sanctification. So we must always remember who called us to salvation, for what purpose he called us to salvation that God has called us all for a decent sex life, consistent with his aims and purposes. That means all immoralities must be avoided 
as being inconsistent with God's gracious call. You cannot live as if you do not know God and what he requires. That is impossible to do if you are a believer and you are in the word of God. It is impossible to say, I didn't know. And then there's a fifth reason. Sexual impurity without repentance actually rejects God. Look what it says in verse 8 of 1 Thessalonians 4. Consequently, he who rejects this is not rejecting man, but the God who gives his Holy Spirit to you. Now, just a little side note here about many times false teachers will really soften sin. There was one uh, preacher called Joseph Prince who was giving a definition of repentance. Uh, And he said that repentance means uh, to change your mind. Now, he's partly right. By way of definition of the Greek term for repentance, metanoia, it does mean to change your mind. But the question is, to change your mind about what? He said that repentance means people who think negatively need to think positively. Well, that's not the definition of repentance. Not biblical repentance. The essence of biblical repentance includes repenting of your sins. Jesus preached repentance. The Apostle John preached repentance. The Apostle Paul preached repentance. The Gospel of Mark, all the Gospels say repent and believe the Gospel. And so the Bible is telling us here, listen, repentance means to change your mind. It means to change direction. It means that you're new. It means that you want to put away your sin. It's a conscious recognition that you are a sinner and that you have to run and turn to the Savior who can forgive your sin and make you right with God and reconcile you to himself and forgive you of all your sin. So see, again, redefining things to mean other than what the Bible actually teaches is very dangerous. So sexual immorality without repentance rejects God. So anyone who treats sexual sin as no big deal is actually treating God and his word as of no account. Whoever despises this teaching about holiness is not just despising some human rule, but is despising despising God himself. To go on to live in impurity is a direct insult to the divine giver and a sin against the Holy Spirit who is the power unto holiness. It is when we sin like this, we grieve God's spirit if, in fact, we're a believer, or we quench God's spirit. And remember this, that God, the Holy Spirit, lives within believers. It is the presence of the Holy Spirit that makes our body the temple of God. It is by walking in the spirit that we get victory over the flesh. You cannot have victory over the flesh alone. The Spirit of God may give you, must give you the help. It is as we yield to the Spirit, He creates, what does He create in us? A holy desire. He creates that within us. He empowers us to walk in holiness and not 
to be detoured into the lusts of the world or the lust of the flesh and to write off what God commands as nothing is to invite the judgment of God, which also grieves the Spirit of God and cuts the power that you have as a Christian to even live and pursue and advance in the Christian life. So it is God's will to live a pure life. And that's what real freedom is. That's what joy is. That's what peace is. And false teachers, they teach otherwise. So what, what is the discipline of purity? Well, the first thing is to be accountable to someone, to another person about what's going on in your heart and life. Second thing is to pray. Pray for pure thoughts and behavior. Fight for purity in prayer. Fight until you get victory over that sin, and God will give you that victory. Also, memorize the Word of God so you're able to resist temptation. What does it say in Psalm 119, verse 11? The Word I have treasured in my heart that I may not sin against thee. Even Job says, I have made a covenant with my eyes. How could I gaze at a virgin? Also, your mind, don't let your mind, your mind to be tied up with sensual things. Divert your thoughts onto other interests. Like it says in Philippians, whatever is true, honorable, right, pure, lovely, of good report, let your mind dwell on these things. Those are things that are going to help your Christian maturity. Also, we need to put hedges around ourselves. Fight, flight, excuse me, is usually the best approach to sexual temptation, all right? To stand and resist temptation is possible, but it is much easier and more, uh, takes more, uh, it, I think it's more sense to run. Like it says in 2 Timothy 2.22, now flee youthful lusts, but what, don't just flee and do nothing. Flee and pursue, pursue righteousness Right, faith, love, peace, with those who call on the Lord with a pure heart. So it doesn't mean you're not going to get. It doesn't mean you're going to avoid temptation. No way. It means that you know how to deal with it when it comes. And sometimes the good uh, way to deal with it is run as far as you can, as long as you can, until you're gone and that temptation is not there. So pr- pursue Christ in prayer. Meditate on His Word. Sing uh, Christian music, read good Christian books, fellowship with God's children, watch what you're surfing on the internet. Uh, Too many times there's too much stuff available too quickly, uh, and uh, you have to be careful that you don't allow yourself to go there, right? But you also have to live in reality. You and I are red-blooded people. We got red blooded blood running through our veins, so that means we need to keep up the guard. We cannot let down the guard. Keep the line between the unmarried state and the married state drawn distinct and clear. Chastity before marriage is what pleases God. All sensuality and lustful passions that are lived out and meditated upon are 
what displeases God. Chastity before marriage is what pleases God. View marriage. All of us should view marriage as something set apart, something sacred, something special, and it was always meant to be that for the for for since creation. It's a creation ordinance for all people. Just because the culture is saying, "Listen, shack up, don't get married. Marriage is an old old wives' tale. You don't have to do that anymore." That is not true. God has not changed his mind on that matter. Marriage is a is a right of granting a special place of privilege given by the Creator to us. Also, live with divine awareness. Live every day before the eyes of God. Rather than turning to sexual impurity for pleasure, turn to Christ for superior pleasure, the pleasure of knowing him and growing in relationship to him is what gives you freedom, what allows you to put your head on your pillow at night and sleep peaceably, to have the joy that no one could take away. See, that's what God gives us, and that's what the world's seeking for, but they'll never find it unless they come to Christ. Repent of the sin, believe in Christ as Lord and Savior, and follow him and learn his word. And remember, the word of God will make you free from all the things that could hold you down in bondage. Let's pray. Lord, may, may we be in command of our bodies. May we have the strength to flee from temptation. And not only that, that we would find happiness in this life in you. But also that we might stand before you unashamed one day because our lives have honored the name of your son, Jesus Christ. And Lord, we know it's, it, is not, it is not the perfection of our life that is you're, you're looking for. It is, it is the heart and direction of our life. So I pray, Lord, that you enable us to do that and that we would buy that be able to teach others how to live an honorable life and hedge against any kind of teaching where someone would say that to live sensually is to be free. That is a lie from the pit of hell. To live for Christ is to be free. And I pray this in your name. Amen. Thank you.